Welcome to LSE, welcome to um, China Model 2, run by Confucius Institute for Business London. Uh, this will be the last event for this year. Uh, from next year onwards, uh, we'll basically we'll have um, each such public event every month. So hoping this will become a regular sort of a feature of LSE to bridge different cultures and uh, open different doors for discussion and understanding. Today, um, the director of Confucius Institute um, cannot make it, so I've been drafted very, very last minute to basically uh, fill in his uh, role. Uh, meanwhile, I have a small role to play today as well. So what we'll do is, we'll, three of us, we chair ourselves. You know, there's no chair, so basically this is egalitarianism. <laughs> and uh, we each run 15 minutes talk to open up issues. And then we invite audience for questions. So this will be open madhouse. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Um, Well, my talk is this. Um, once um, Maynard Keynes famously said last uh, century that in the long run we are all dead, uh, which is true. That's natural law. But uh, you know, basically, economic historians will argue if we do not know the long run, we are all dead in the short run too. So. We, we may not be able to survive. So just to tease you, um, I'm throwing in my sort of a, a trade that this is a 1,000 year approach uh, to deal with China, not in the current day, minute by minute, real time sort of a approach. I'm showing something far more uh, sort of a, um, Fundamental, the real world uh, world order uh, in the past 1,000 years. Now, this is a stylized uh, growth curve. It can be GDP, it can be population, it can be GDP weighted population or population weighted GDP, whatever you call it. But usually, usually people agree that this is the long-term growth in Europe. You start from dark ages, then you have black deaths, then you have numerous revolutions, for example, a military revolution, science revolution, enlightenment movement, and then you have finally industrial revolution. Then you have World War One, World War Two. In between, you have Great Depression. And that will be deep. Uh, this really should be, oh. This should be here, yeah. Oh, uh, they have their own mind. Then we have post-World War II, very fast and sustainable growth. But now we are in some sort of difficulty, yeah. This has nothing to do with China. China has different type of growth. You have Song, really, Song was the leader of science and technology and production, heavy industry in particular. Uh, in the world, in the known world. And then you have the Mongol Yuan, Mongol invasion, the conquest. The Mongols 
did such a damage to Chinese uh, uh, industry and agriculture and the culture, um, it takes a long time for China to, it takes a long time for China to recover. And then you have the Ming uh, Plateau, um, and then you have the Qing until the 1930s, uh, reasonably high living standards. Then you have World War II and the Maoism, that's a deep trough. And then you have post-Mao recovery and new growth. This has nothing to do with Europe. Really, if you put these two together, you see China functioned in the past 1,000 years as a counter-cyclical force. So when Europe was not, so doing, not, not doing so well during the Dark Ages, Kenneth, use this one. Any luck? Yeah, this is the gap, growth gap between uh, China and Europe. And uh, thanks to the Mongols, uh, this gave the Europeans an upper hand. And then you have Black Death, and you have Black Death during that time, China had the glorious period of voyages uh, in uh, Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And then during the um, multiple revolutions, uh, China slowed down, in fact, uh, considerably. And then you have World War, you know, World War II growth, and the Maoism certainly pushed China to a total disaster. Okay, now, um, I will only pick up the highlights of China's growth to show what this means to the world. Now, a few, I have lots of slides, but I will skip them. Now, the, the global impact of the Song economic revolution will be the following. First of all, the Chinese established a very you know, sophisticated institutions for private ownership over land. That was, very, that was probably the first in the world. Secondly, the Chinese also managed to have institutions of private property rights over human capital. Private schooling will lead you to you know, a lot of knowledge, and then you go for examinations, and then you become officials. So for those who really hate uh, examinations, you should hate the Chinese first, because they create all this mess for human race. And also the idea of paper currency, the rise of a heavy industry in the, in, in the way of mass production of iron, steel, and the porcelain. Actually, porcelain is heavy industry. And the spread of the compass, the sail, and the clinker-built type of uh, sea-going ships, and uh, the spread of gunpowder and firearms. And this is what the Chinese did for the rest of the world. You know, this is evidence I'm going to skip. And the second period is the Ming, the Ming voyages. Let's forget about something else, the rest of it, just the Ming voyages. Uh, they spread from the Chinese point of view, sea routes, 
maritime charts, and the world atlas, the spread of international trade and the trading outposts in the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. Um, the typical kind of approach will be Malacca. The Chinese actually set up their core factories in Malacca, and they supply the passing Chinese ships with food, money, and also workers. It's very much like what the Americans nowadays are doing in the rest of the world. And uh, now this is the first non-world atlas done by um, Matteo Ricci inside the Chinese Forbidden City in Beijing. What he did was to actually uh, combine the European knowledge of Europe than the Chinese knowledge of the rest of Eurasia. And the Chinese know the Arabs for a long time through silk trade. They also know uh, India subcontinent because of Buddhism. They know the rest of the uh, you know, uh, Indian Ocean and the Pacific here because they, are, they were once the best sellers in Asia. So that's what happened. So, and the number three, the Qing High Living Standards. Um, the, the Chinese um, managed to have the largest national population in the world uh, during the Qing. Uh, the number uh, at that time was 300 million to 400 million Chinese. This certainly generated enough demand for silver because China was known for uh, very poor deposits of silver, or for gold, uh, also for gold. So this certainly uh, opened up all the opportunities for silver to be traded, uh, to be imported to China. And uh, also high demand for luxury goods like opium. Uh, you, unless you have all the money to burn, you're not going to have that habit for a very long time. We know in coastal China, 30% of the male population regularly consume opium at some time. And also, they import large quantities of pharmaceutical materials like uh, tiger bones, uh, rhino horns, and all, all these all this, you know, luxurious uh, um, items. They, they cost a lot of money. Uh, they're legitimate uh, consumer goods, of course. And uh, then the Europeans came, came to China uh, regularly for trade. So here, Britain in Jili. Yeah. This is done by an Italian artist, a uh, court artist, Dion uh, Qing. And uh, who, who else? This is Spain, Da Xiyang. So all the Europeans um, decided this is where the money is. So if you say China was poor, think again. China was one of the richest places, and China was where the money was. Now, then you have this Lord McCartney facing the Emperor Qianlong, and you have to debate whether uh, Qianlong was very conservative and McCartney was really uh, very progressive. Let's forget about this debate. The very fact that McCartney coming to China begging for trade says something to us. You know, China is where you can make money, right? 
and also for quite some time, China endured a lot of a, a trade deficit. Uh, China pay trade deficit with China's silver imported previously. So you can't say China was poor. China was supporting the world economy, lubricating the world trade on a large scale. And these consumer goods imported to China for 50 years. And these are the prices they actually, because they imported so much, the prices um, coming down, uh, imports, uh, prices for imports. So here we are. So much so that we have Chinoiserie uh, period in Europe. Why? Because the Chinese represented at that time good life. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Nothing else. No more, no less. Now, finally, the global impact of post-Mao miracle growth. China was reopening up. China opened up many times, reopened again. And this certainly uh, helped the world to take advantage of, of the lower end of manufacturers uh, made in China. Uh, so this is uh, basically what the West and the Tigers didn't want to do anymore. So they basically dump this uh, on the shoulders of the Chinese, uh, didn't hurt anybody, China keep going. In doing so, on the demand side, China absorbed enormous foreign direct investment. China was, or still, I think it still is, the largest uh, FDI um, recipient in the world. On the supply side, China supplied to the rest of the world, I call it buy one, get one free type of cheap manufacturers. Um, in Wenzhou alone, they can produce six billion pair of shoes each year, enough for everyone on this planet to have one pair. Think about it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether they're still doing it. It's probably not, not worth doing because <laughs> the profit is just so thin. And also, by practicing mercantilism, the Chinese managed to basically accumulate enough foreign reserves. Now they start to reinvest their money outside of China to generate growth beyond China's territory. So what we can say is, I'm finishing, so don't worry about it. <laughs> ha, final remarks. The real meaning of counter-cyclical China in the world is without China, the world would be so bloody boring. <laughs> With China, we have a twin engines to keep our growth going. Thank you. For those who do not know, Arthur is the director of uh, LSE's Asian Research Center, and he's a, a world-class expert on current development in China. Well, I'm not world-class expert. I feel like a blind man trying to figure out what the elephant looks like. <laughs> and so let me start by with the title, China Model 2. 
you are perfectly entitled to ask what is the model one and is model two. Well, the brief answer is I don't know because the person who actually said the title is, is not here at the moment. So let me think of a way that is model one is really the context and the situation in China in 1980. And model two is the present situation or important figures. So let's just go back 30 years or so to 1980. The predominant issue for Chinese policymakers then was poverty. Poverty at that time was mostly agriculture and something like even according to an underestimate 40% of the Chinese rural population actually lived below the poverty line. So that was the predominant issue. The actual percentage may be even higher. The second issue in 1980 was really transformation of the economy, which was almost half destroyed, if not fully destroyed because of the Cultural Revolution, reviving the educational system, and so is really building both the social services and also the economy. China is almost closed from the rest of the world, just to remind that the total foreign trade of China in 1978 was 12 to $15 billion. Now it's well over two trillions. So the scale is actually quite different. So let's just look at the present situation. What are the present issues? China is well past the low income status. Its per capita income is well over 2,000. It's a middle income economy. So the primary concern for Chinese policymakers is really how to keep on growing and not get stuck in what is called the middle income trap. So China does not have a problem at the moment of opening to the outside world. China is the largest foreign trader in the world and with the largest foreign exchange reserve. So China, unlike 1980, is fully part of the international economy. So the predominant issue for China is really to how to play its new role in the world economy. The second thing is China for, is remind ourselves that China, although the second largest economy in the world, it still remains a developing economy. That is, in terms of absolute size, China is number two in the world, but in terms of per capita income, is well over 100th rank. So it's the combination of being the second largest economy in the world, but in terms of standard of living and living standards, being a developing economy. Obviously, within China, there are a great deal of differences. So that makes the situation so quite different. So I'll come back to the international repercussions of the rise of China, but let me dwell one international national issue which is going to loom large. In 1980, when the reforms just began, China was predominantly an agriculture country. Depending on how you count and how you define something like three quarters to 80% of the Chinese population actually lived in the countryside. Now, according to the census, population census conducted last year, about half of the population in China is already urban. So it's the first time in its long history that China will be a predominantly urban society. 
In fact, there are grounds to believe that urbanization rate in China is grossly underestimated. The actual urbanization rate is much higher. What difference does it make? The greatest difference is it's not the issue of poverty which would loom large. China has been extremely successful in fighting or combating the problem of poverty. So poverty in China is no longer having enough to eat, by and large, and having to clothe yourself, but really is the urban deprivation issues which are going to loom large. So I just single out two issues which are going to, be, which are already important in China, but will become even more important in future. One is housing. That is relative to income, housing is expensive in China, or has become so in the last 10 years or so. That is when in the urban areas, employment units or Dunway actually provided housing, housing rent actually accounted for a very small proportion of income. Now for young couples, the major issue in China is how to buy an apartment. So relative to income, housing is expensive in China. And over time, the problem of housing is going to become increasingly important. The second issue, which is also connected with urbanization, is intracity transport. That is, China's cities, because of, of urbanization increase in the area, are full of cars to the extent that now in many cities, cars are choking not only human beings, but also traffic. So question of developing intra-urban transport is going to be major issues. Many Chinese living in cities actually spend far too long every day traveling to and fro work. So I'm just trying to focus on the context of problems which have changed, and you can say these are the problems of prosperity rather than problems of poverty. So it's the urban nature of the problem. The third thing which we are observing in China, which will become more important over time, is the rise of mega cities in China. That is, the population of Shanghai is already 24 to 23, 23 to 24 million, depending on how you count it. Beijing is getting over 20 million, but if you define it in a more general sense, the population is much larger. So what we are seeing in China is already, to some extent, you observe in Japan, is the rise of mega urban regions. So Tokyo, Yokohama region has a population of 30 million. The forecast for China is that in the next 10 to 20 years, China would have three to four mega regions, each with a population of 60 to 70 million, if not more. One obviously around Guangzhou in the south, which is including, could include both Hong Kong and Shenzhen, that will have a population of well over 100 million. Then one in the center of China, that is East China, Shanghai, and the area around East Shanghai, and then one in Northern China, perhaps one in the West. The question of how to govern these population is entirely new because the scale of these urban conurbations is much larger than anything seen so far. So these urban issues of management of large urban spaces is going to become a major po population issue in China. This, let me also point out one important contrast. In 1980, the predominant concern of the government was how to control population. And that was the year to remind you 
when the one-child policy was officially introduced. Mm -hmm. From 19, 2015, China's labor force would start to fall. The population would start to increase. So this is, for first time ever in Chinese demographic history, that we would have actually declining population, declining labor force, not yet population. Population has started to decline in another 20 years' time. There are certain important consequences. I leave that aside to come back to question. Let me finally turn to the question of the rise of China in the world. People already forecasting that China is the next superpower is not already one. The, there is an important asymmetry between discussion of China in the world. The outsiders, the foreigners, are far more sanguine about the rise of China, China being the next superpower, the Chinese themselves, especially the government, are much more reserved and qualified. For example, Chinese government and a lot of Chinese press point out that China still remains a developing country. So they emphasize more the relative backwardness of China in terms of science and technology and low per capita income, so-called the developing economy aspect, while the outsiders tend to focus on the size of China. So, but I think for Chinese policymakers, international issues are very different. For better or worse, China is being treated very differently from other developing economies. And this is very clear, for example, in case of climate discussions which are taking place. China would still like to be treated as a developing economy and thus according to special status. And there are good arguments for that, but the rest of the world, especially the United States, want to treat China as if it's second to the United States, also in environmental pollution, if not number one, and should behave like a developed country. So that is going to, so China has to face in its international policy issues which it hasn't faced in the past. The second issue, China would say, that given China's economic position, China is going to play an important role in the international stage. The question is, how will it happen and what form it would take? China, by virtue of its economic position, actually still plays a relatively limited role in international institutions. One of the major barriers to China occupying more important position in the international stage is the shortage of people who are experienced in managing international affairs. So those of you who are educated in LSE have got a bright future ahead of you that there are many international positions, top international positions which are potentially open to you. So I think that I'm nearing the, my time, so let me end here and then obviously we can come back to these issues in questions and answers. Thank you, Arthur. Last speaker is uh, Professor Jude Howell, and she specialized with uh, developmental issues, and uh, she's going to Guangzhou tomorrow early in the morning. So we should thank her for uh, being so, how uh, uh, to put it, uh, devoted to our, uh, uh, this uh, round table. And uh, here we are.
Good. Okay, thank you very much. I was very glad that Utter started off by saying he didn't know what Model 1 was, because that was my question, and I was puzzling, well, what was Model 1? And then um, Kent said to me that, oh, well, I'm covering the last thousand years. So I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, anyway, as I work in the field of international development, um, I, t I tend to have heard of the Chinese model in a very different context. Um, which is quite interesting, namely that China might be a model of development um, for uh, other countries, uh, for developing countries that are seeking an alternative path to development that has been offered um, through Western aid um, and Western development trajectories. Um, so I'm sort of coming at it that, from that um, perspective. And there's been, in my field, quite a lot of literature about the idea of a China model. And even some people talk about there being not a Washington consensus, but a Beijing consensus. Though all of us are puzzled, well, what is the Beijing consensus? And one of the um, aspects of the Beijing consensus is that apparently the Chinese model, model is sustainable and equitable, and um, which hopefully to most of you here, that should be rather surprising that somebody could say that. Fortunately, that, that um, position has been um, totally discredited by many China scholars, which is, is, is good to, to know. Um, and, um, but still, I think there are many lessons that can be taken from the Chinese uh, model of development if we want to talk about that. And there is a lot of literature celebrating some of those ideas and lessons. However, a lot of that celebration is, revolves around two things. First, of China's terrific um, experiences with, um, in, with um, pushing growth rates and maintaining very high growth rates. And that is extraordinary. Over three decades, the, the um, economic growth rates have increased at a spectacular speed and been maintained. The other way in which China is celebrated is because it has supposedly lifted millions of people out of poverty. And indeed, China has. But, and I will talk about this in a moment, some of that is questionable. So what I'm concerned about is, well, my concern is less, well, what is the Chinese model of growth? And uh, rather, the question is, development at whose cost, for whom? And those are the issues that I'm more concerned about. And really, I, we don't have much time, so I'm going to focus on two or three issues that I think are problematic. The first of these is around inequality. The second is around migrant workers. And the third is around dispossession. And I think they're problematic uh, for the future of the Chinese government and how it goes about addressing these issues. Utter talked about urbanization and inequality, and he's done a lot of work on this and also on social welfare. And as we know, there's the uh, economic growth in China has been spectacular, but it's led also to rising um, inequality, both between provinces and within provinces. And recent figures suggest, for example, that the average per capita incomes of people living in urban areas are at least three times higher uh, than in rural areas. We know that people in Shanghai in general are much better off than people living in Gansu province. 
Um, the Chinese government has lifted millions of people out of poverty. But there is, and that is correct, but there is also a politics of poverty that we should be aware of. And that is around, for example, how you measure poverty. How do you measure the poverty line? Let me just give you some quick examples of that. Um, in 2008, the poverty line was around about 1,196 annual per capita, uh, per capita income. That meant that in China, as of 2008, about 36 million people lived in poverty in the rural areas, in absolute poverty. Now, that's um, a tremendous achievement. That figure is often compared with figures of about 230, 50 million at the start of the reforms that Atta was talking about. Um, recently, in 2011, earlier this year, the government raised the uh, poverty line, which would mean that actually, well, really, there are about 40 million people living in poverty. And even that figure was challenged by China scholars. This month, the government again raised the poverty threshold for rural areas to 2,300 yuan uh, per year. And that means that, according to these new figures, there are actually about 128 million people that is five times as many people as in uh, 2000, um, uh, sorry, 2010, there were about 26 million. So there are about uh, five times as many people now living in absolute poverty compared to the end of 2010. Now, what actually it doesn't mean is that suddenly there are five times as many people who have become poor, but rather that there's a, it all depends on how you measure poverty, and there's a politics to that. And Atta <coughs> mentions the recent Busan, um, Kyoto, Kyoto Treaty discussions taking place in Busan. And it's interesting there that the uh, Chinese official said, well, actually, we are a developing country. So I would like to say that there is also politics around when China is a developing country and when it is not a developing country. However, that's an aside. The key thing is that there is a serious issue about rising inequality. And the figures for 2010 tell us that China's Gini coefficient, one of the measurements of inequality, is about 0.47. It's about 0.47, very similar to the United States. That's a high number that a government should be worried about. And the government is, and I'll come back to that. So inequality is one of the issues that I think is uh, of concern with the Chinese model of development. Um, the second issue is, I think, around migrant workers. Not enough, in my opinion, is said about the conditions of Chinese migrant workers. How has Chinese development, how have the cities been built that has come with the process of urbanization? It is millions of Chinese workers working, uh, often in very poor working conditions, facing various kinds of occupational diseases and industrial injuries, uh, with little compensation, uh, often um, enduring excessive um, hours of work in factories. None of this is, is particularly a revelation. There's plenty written about it. And in rather militaristic-like labor regimes. Migrant workers are often disenfranchised through their inability to access citizenship rights in urban areas because of the hookah system. They're, they are disorganized, and I would argue are deliberately kept disorganized. 
It's very difficult for labor to organize in the form of a labor movement. And as Polanyi, if you've read the work of Polanyi on the Great Transformation, um, Polanyi demonstrates how historically important it is for taming capitalism and for ensuring welfare gains to labor, that you have labor movements and social movements in order to press for those uh, reforms that can take the, the sharp edge off capitalism. Um, okay. There are several reasons why it's difficult to organize in China around labor, and um, that's something I will leave for questions, and I can go into it then. The second, um, the, well, the third issue um, is inequality, migrant workers, and the third issue I would, would like to mention is about China's what I call dispossessed. Um, I have not done research on this, and I don't really know of a lot of research on dispossession in China, but it seems to me there have been quite a number of people who have lost land in rural areas to development, in particular to the building of industrial zones for office blocks. These are some of the costs of urbanization. There are also people in the urban areas who've lost property, private property, and communities who've lost their communities in the process of development for building the lovely ring roads and motorways and mega skyscrapers, for building those lovely buildings in Pudong, and we all know that Pudong is sinking under the weight of concrete. Um, and then there are the workers who've lost their guaranteed employment, and that Atta talked about in the 1980s, the affordable social uh, welfare and medical care and so on. And there are those people who've lost their land and their homes for building dams and so on. So these are what I would call China's dispossessed peoples about whom little is actually researched or um, properly uh, investigated. Now all this is somewhat problematic, can be problematic, because um, for the government to maintain its legitimacy um, it needs to satisfy people's economic needs. And as long as the government and uh, the economy can keep producing high positive growth rates, that can actually quell any demands for any reform or opening up of political spaces. Um, and um, the problem with the inequality and the problem with the grievances that arise out of dispossession is that they lead to a lot of social unrest and social protests, strikes, and so on, which we know is, um, a pro is perceived as a problem by the government, which tries to deal with that in different ways. And from the point of view of political stability, some of the main groups that are of concern are, of course, the workers, who I would suggest um, the uh, party will try to keep disorganized, the peasants, who in any case are going to be a smaller proportion of the population, but nevertheless are a source of concern, and also the emerging middle classes in China and the intellectuals. And they can be kept happy as long as the growth rates can be held up. And so in terms of dealing with some of the social grievances and social protests, one of the things the government has been trying to do, which is, is, is a very wise step, is to try and address the issue of rising inequality and um, actually developing a proper system of social welfare 
and Utter has done a lot of work on social services in, in China, which are, and social security in particular, so he's a real expert on that. But the changes have been rather slow and rather piecemeal. And um, some of the issues there revolve around the whole system of social welfare provision and also about uh, civil society. And I want to make two points. The first is that the changes in the social welfare system have taken time, in part because social work and social policy are very new areas of activity, of research, of study, and policy in China. Um, another reason is that the efforts to change the social welfare provision have been slow is because part of the solution has hinged on trying to get NGOs, so-called NGOs, or people's organizations, and community groups on board to provide some of these services as a supplement to the government. But the very problem here is that the regulatory framework that governs registered civil society groups or registered social organizations in China is still, despite recent changes this year, is still much too restrictive and cumbersome to function as an effective enabler of the number and kind of groups that are really needed to competently, adequately supplement state provision of social welfare. And this is a dilemma because uh, on the one hand, the government would like to cultivate service-oriented civil society organizations that don't make too many demands in terms of rights or participation, uh, but at the same time keep a tight control on other types of civil society organizations. And I would argue you can't have the one without the other. Nowhere do you have the one without the other. So to finish off, I would say that in terms of the future China model, which is very much based on the idea of forever continual uh, high growth rates, the question is how long the current contract, and I would say there is a contract between state and society, between the state, between business and certain parts of society, um, the question is how long can that be sustained given the global recession and its likely negative effect on an export-driven model, growth model of China. And even if China were to shift to a domestic consumption-led form of growth and tries to move up the production cycle, even if it tries to do that, uh, there are going, still going to be some very, very crucial issues to deal with about how you manage social expectations and how a government and how the Chinese government manages uh, social expectations will be indeed crucial for um, the survival of any government. And I'll end there. Thank you. Perfect timing. Thank you, Jude. Both of you, um, you just keep the, you know, my you know, job so simple, so easy. Now the floor is open. So this is because of the roundtable nature we invite the audience to uh, raise questions. Uh, as usual, we take three, four questions in a uh, cluster, and then we please identify yourself, uh, your name, your institution, and then uh, your question to whom uh, your question is for. 
Let's start. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Troy, and uh, I study real estate economics and finance. And uh, I have like a first have a, a general question to all of you. Uh, I just wonder, you know, like given the current economics, you know, situation, uh, how long do you think it, it will take China to become, you know, a developed country from a developing country? And then the second question, uh, I want to ask the Professor Hossein. And uh, you, you mentioned that, like, you know, Beijing or like Shanghai is gonna be a, like mega city. But uh, I'm aware that, you know, like in in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, we have like citizenship, you know, restriction. Do you think, you know, this will actually, you know, like uh, make it better? You know, make it like actually that won't happen? Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Move on. Um, yeah, the lady at the back. Yes. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Soumang. I'm a master's student at the LSE. Uh, this question is addressed to anyone. Since we're talking about China model, is there something innovative that China brings to the table? Because from my perspective, it seems that China's growth model, which is social control and state-led development, has been tried before from the late developing countries of Germany and Japan to more recently the other East Asian tigers. So besides the sheer scale at which China is doing this, is there anything innovative that China brings them that we can call the China model? And how is it applicable to other developing countries if there is no other developing country besides India that has this kind of scale? So is there anything that developing countries can learn from China in particular? Thank you. Thank you. More? Any more? Yes, please. Uh, James Irving, LSE. Um, just actually in relation to the last question, I think that one thing that distinguishes China is that its investments in fixed assets, uh, now 50 or 60% of GDP, which is a, of a scale unseen in any other developing country, to the best of my knowledge, do you think that that poses a real problem for China's continued growth? Right. One more. Hello, Timothy, bachelor's student. Um, in relation to the China model, could you explain how, even though Europe and the USA, their markets are slowing down, how Latin America and possibly Sub-Saharan Africa may play a part in China's export-led model that we see right now and in the future, its development plan? Thank you. We, um, now, uh, shall, we, shall we give a go? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, don't look at me. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. um, How long is China going to be a developed country? Well, there, there, there are three questions for all of us, and the one particular question for Arthur. Why don't you start? Yeah, because you're, you're picking up by the How long would it take for China to become a developed country? In terms of absolute size, the forecast is that at the present rate, China will overtake the United States in absolute size, not in per capita income, in 20 to 25 years' time. You might disagree, I mean, like all forecasts, this has problems. But in terms of per capita income, living standards is much longer. And given the uncertainty in the world economy, well, the also question is, we cannot simply say what will happen in future by projecting from the situation at present. But I personally think that China can keep on growing. It doesn't have to depend on the export market. It's in principle, it's possible for China to reorient its sources of growth to direct more towards sort of domestic demand. Briefly take the question of megacities. I think that 
The problem in China is not the size of urbanization. Urbanization has been very quick in China. The problem is really existence of large population of migrants who actually lack sort of same rights as the permanent residents of the locality. So it's that problem which would become even worse unless the situation of the hukou system is actually changed. And that's a big social issue in China, that is how to integrate what according to the last population census, there's something like 220 million people in China who are actually living and working on a long-term basis in a place other than what is registered in the hukou. So that's a big social issue in China. And I just briefly take question of investment rate. I think investment rate in China is very high. China is investing almost half of its GDP, which is very unusual. In fact, it could invest more. That's where exactly the problem lies. China has, compared to other developing countries, compared to India, has a much, much better infrastructure. I mean, any, anybody who's been to both India and China can just by looking at the airports, roads, and other infrastructure can see the huge differences between India and China. But that is also China's problem. That is, there's too much investment in yielding very low rates of return. So I just simply point out that is, for example, China has overinvested in high-speed train network and a lot of places uh, without much economic justification high-speed tra train uh, lines have been built and I think part of the problem is China saves too much and those savings are available too easily for investment at very low rates of return and that's a problem China has to deal with because if it's not to be caught in what is called the middle income trap so let me yeah, thank you, Arthur. Uh, Jude? Yes, on the question about uh, the Chinese model for international development, I mean, I think it's a very good question, and there's a vast, well, there's a, an emerging and vast literature about what can we uh, learn from China. Um, all kinds of things have been suggested around China's gradualism, its evidence-based policy, its um, um, method of experimenting first with a policy as for example with the special economic zones which contained foreign investment in a few locations along the coast in the early 80s and before gradually expanding um, the um, policy, concessionary policies to other parts of China. Uh, those are some of the things that are often uh, mentioned, but I think uh, two things that are, uh, two things uh, that um, stand out are um, first is the um, the um, argument that China has you might dis dis say in development speak you would say that China has a pro poor or a pro development um, leadership. And I would say that despite everything I've said about development not benefiting everybody equally at all, nevertheless, I think the leadership, the Communist Party leadership has had a very strong commitment to development, to developing the country. The model of development has been a growth model rather than a growth plus distribution model, but the commitment has most certainly been there. Whatever 
you might also come back and say, well, there's, what about all the corruption and this, that, and the other? True, yes, but overall, comparing it with other contexts, um, the uh, leadership is, uh, we can be described as a pro-development um, leadership. The second point I would make is that um, China already had considerable state capacity already, administrative capacity, state capacity. It had a state, um, it has built up through the Maoist decades, a state that is able to reach down to all parts um, of the country, which has its uh, good side and its bad side. But in uh, many developing countries, states are very weak and have little reach beyond the capital city. And that is very distinctive in China. And along with that, I would uh, agree with, I think it's Barry Norton who makes a point, that China has not tried to start to first establish perfect institutions and then set about development. So it has not tried, for example, first let us get into uh, position a rule of law and get, get, let's first of all have some laws about property rights and then we will start uh, bringing in foreign capital. Um, it hasn't. It started off with the, exist, the existing institutions and adapted these as it has gone along. And that contrasts very sharply with the policies um, of Western donor agencies, which is about um, good governance. We've got to get the governance right, and that will solve the other issues. Um, so I think that is an interesting feature of the China, Chinese model that might actually be um, a lesson that can be taken elsewhere. Mm-hmm. On the a point about the domestic consumption, I think, uh, again, I'm thinking aloud because, yes, I would agree that China could probably maintain growth rates uh, by turning, not relying so much on the export market for driving growth, but rely on domestic consumption. But my concern, though, which is, is around the social expectations, first of all, as Utter said quite rightly, there is not a strong culture of spending. People are used to saving. The savings rate is high. So people have got to start spending more, which is why wages, apart from all the suicides in the Foxconn factories uh, last year, and wages, as we know, wages were uh, a lot of wages were increased in factories by um, considerable percentages. Uh, the justification was that for that has often been in terms of, well, a concern about the conditions of workers' um, uh, factory environments. But um, another reason is, importantly, that uh, the government needs to spur domestic consumption, hence has given the green light to wages rising. And, of course, um, a lot of foreign enterprises have been quite worried about that. But it's important for the Chinese economy, so people will begin to spend more. But the problem with that, I think, is around social expectations, because it will be very clear after a while, as it is clear in this country, that not everybody can consume as much as they would like to consume with the incomes they've got. So the whole problem of inequality will become um, even more visible. Yeah. Okay, well, um, my turn now. Um, how long does it take for China to overtake uh, other superpowers? Uh, funny, in the past 10 years, nobody will ask whether China will take over the United States. It is when China will take over the United States. Um, 
in the total aggregate GDP figure, the most optimistic figure will be 15 years. But there's a think tank in Beijing on the term of you know, this millennium. They draw a conclusion, scientifically speaking, scientifically speaking, it would take 100 years for China to become a superpower. I think that's a, a decent, reliable estimate by the Chinese themselves. Yeah. By the way, there's no single Nobel Prize winner produced by China so far. So that says something. Uh, on the issue of China model, uh, size, whatever, I think the China model is really related to the role of the state. This will basically support the views by Jude and Arthur. Uh, the state uh, controlled too much uh, resources and its state is too powerful. That means if the state can guess right, China will grow very fast. But what if the state make mistakes? Then the disaster will be great too. Yeah, we know the trough caused by Maoism. That is precisely what happened. If you have a wrong state, very powerful, but the state is mad, yeah, then you, you're in big, big trouble. So it is the checks and the balances uh, are something missing in the Chinese governors. Uh, this really goes back to the NGO. and the, you, They want NGOs to p provide services, but they don't want NGOs to have political says. So this is really very, very odd. Um, so the state monopolize, monopolizes too much. And also, increasingly, when you look at China, it is quite feudal. For example, Hukou. Hukou is a complete feudal. Yeah. It is not sort of an open society. Any open society should have. Uh, it divides people into artificially into different groups, and you are not supposed to move. Even you have good jobs and good education, you can't simply just go. Yeah, this is really something very anti-growth. Now, for high savings rate, there are some institutional reasons there, simply because the lack of social security. If you do not save during your, your rainy days, you're doomed. Yeah. So everybody save and save for their kids to get schools, universities, get married, to buy, buy houses. So this is a wrong type of economy. You can't really generate enough domestic um, consumption if you do not fix China's uh, you know, domestic uh, social security issue. This is certainly is the big issue at the moment. Both Jude and, and Arthur are working uh, on in different aspects of, of, of China's further development. And also the other issue is China as an economy is big and is too open. 70% of Chinese GDP is related to export, and the 40% of GDP is actually export. So we have a notion that Japan is very open, but Japan only exports 13% of GDP. China actually exports three times more GDP to outside world. That kind of dependency is a killer. If we have, you know, uh, a recession in the West, then basically the, the Chinese uh, 
model cannot continue. And also, that gentleman's is, uh, question of whether Africa and Latin America, the developing world, can actually support China's uh, dumping sort of a type of a growth, you know, buy one, get one free. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, it doesn't seem to be the, the case because um, <coughs> the, the type of, of goods and services China produce, uh, produces is not particularly suited for certain countries. They're all for advanced industrialized countries. Yeah. More questions, please? Yes. Two over there, one here. Yes. Let's start. Chun Lu Sun, LSC alumnus. Um, I got a question, um, <coughs> actually, I think related to all you said previously. Um, basically, I want to know a little bit more about um, the sustainability of the Chinese model. I think you mentioned yourself previously about um, um, the politics and the go governance of, Chinese, um, of, the, of, of China and also, also the uh, social security issue as well. But I also want to raise the sustainability of the Chinese growth itself, the sustainability of the environment, um, of social harmony, um, demographics, you mentioned as well. So I think these are all challenges to China for itself to, to proclaim itself as, uh, you know, um, a well-advanced country. I think there's a lot of challenges, as you well uh, mentioned earlier as well. There are challenges China is facing. I think um, we would, uh, you know, we should also looking at what what the challenges China is facing when we talk about uh, the Chinese model, because that's very important. Um, as a Chinese myself, I am concerned somehow about uh, the model for its future. Um, Rightfully, wrongfully, but something which should bear in our mind, I believe. Thank you. Okay, move on. Thank you. Yeah, there's one over there and the lady. Yes, okay, well, you decide. Yeah. Um, my name is uh, Alex. I'm at the LSE. Um, I'd like to direct my question primarily at Atar and Jude. Um, uh, and, and this is uh, specifically relates, relates to the China model in the sense that. Um, uh, when we talk about a model for China, we talk about the state. And uh, there is sort of, a, sort of, I guess you could say with the uh, histor historiography of the Industrial Revolution, right, there's an optimistic case and a pessimistic case. And uh, the optimists about uh, China today would, say, would point to something along the uh, right of uh, population growth, people being lifted above the po poverty line, um, per capita incomes increasing. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, and this, uh, so, um, even uh, more religious freedoms, um, even sort of rock and roll, right, punk rock being having its place now in China in a, in a, in a very specific setting. So there's this generally a tendency for China to open up. But then the pessimists, these are sort of, I guess you could say, the people that write for The Economist, um, you know, they're always uh, damning the state, um, how, they're, how, how they tend to throw civil rights lawyers in jail. Um, there's a new aircraft carrier, I think, that that was just launched by the government. Um, and there's all, all kinds of sort of, they don't trust um, a centralized state that sort of represents an oligarchy but says they're doing something 
in the name of the people. There's some, some mistrust associated. So just briefly, um, if you could ordinarily rank the, um, the best reason to be optimistic or, and the best reason to be pessimistic, sort of each side of the argument. Right, yeah. Yes, please. Hi, Li Wu. I'm working for Agricultural Bank of China. Uh, my question uh, is for all of speakers. Um, as we, as I said, uh, there's a discrepancy uh, between the views in views of the stage of China's development. Uh, for uh, foreigners, they think China is more advanced than what Chinese think about themselves. So my question is: uh, um, Is uh, discrepancy more due to economic reasons or just politics? And uh, which views are, more, are closer to the truth? Thank you. One more, please. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Um, Han He from LSE Masters. I have one question addressed to uh, Professor Jude. Would you care to elaborate on the particular challenges faced by labor unions in China, especially with the unions in the south of China, i.e. Guangdong province, being granted access to demonstrate them in, in public or negotiate with uh, uh, negotiating the fashion of collective bargaining, whereas such is not um, sh observed elsewhere, would that indicate a divide in, in party policy regarding the, uh, the perspective or take on the unionization of labor forces? So I didn't quite understand it. Um, you, you mean in Guangdong, the, uh, the um, collective bargaining in yeah, Guangdong? Uh, uh, labor force in Guangdong were granted access to demonstrating in, in the streets or, or engage in collective bargaining, whereas such uh, is not observed elsewhere in China. Would that indicate the divide in, in party policy? Yeah. Okay, we stop uh, for, for answer, uh, answers and then we move on for the next round. Thank you. All right. You, basically, it's all for you, so I'm having a good time. <laughs> Sitting pretty, yeah. <laughs> so you want me to start? Yeah. Well, let me start with the plain statement. Yes, China has lots of problems. In fact, and that's the reason why it's like a real economy. It wouldn't be a real economy, a believable economy, if it didn't have problem. Mm. The question is that, um, and also let me say that many countries in the world would love to have China's problems, it could have some of its performance. So, but I think the more interesting question is whether the Chinese leadership or government is capable of dealing with those problems, not perfectly, but in a at least reasonably satisfactory way. So in general, let me state my conclusion, that is, from all counts, there are problems with Chinese government, but it has also shown capacity to actually deal with the issues, at least in a satisfactory way. But also there are areas where some things have been neglected. So let me also make a statement, that is, China's most valuable resource in China is its is, is population. Neither is natural resources. China's natural resources may be large, not, but not relative to its population. Land area in China is limited relative to its population, so its riches don't lie in its land resources. So it ultimately, is the quality of its people, which actually is the principal resource of China. And that's where I find some of the major faults. I mean, obviously, the level of education in China has increased very rapidly, and obviously the proof is many of you sitting here. But if we look at the gap between urban education and rural education, that has keep on widening. 
So I think that relative to investment in technology and physical goods, Chinese government has neglected really raising the level of education. Similarly, it could be said about health. China's achievement in field of health, at least in the pre-reform period, were actually a lesson for all over the world. In fact, the WHO Charter on health for healthcare for everyone was stimulated by Chinese experience. I don't, I don't think China has maintained its record, so I think it could have done a lot more than it has done. So I purposely pick out the areas which are problematic in China. So I think that really, if you, I come back to the question, is that if China's main resource is population, is really developing population or human capital, as economists would call it, which is really important for China. When I emphasize domestic consumption, I do not mean simply consumption of private goods. China has more shopping malls than anywhere else in the world, and many of them are actually not functioning. But by domestic consumption, I also include social services, healthcare, and education. And in fact, that's the area where actually the rate of return are very, very high. Yes, I'm puzzling over the optimist and pessimist question, pessimist question because as a character, I tend to be very optimistic about everything. So, um, um, and, and certainly um, in my short life experience, I mean, the um, changes in China have been phenomenal. All the, all the things that you mentioned about the society, uh, politics becoming more open and higher living standards and everything. But... Um, what concerns me, and it all is also linked to the issues of inequality and health inequality, because you mentioned WHO, but China performs very badly on the, the, rank, the WHO rankings for health, um, very, very, very badly on the, on the WHO rankings for health, access to health and equality in health. Astoundingly badly when you think how China was seen as a model, or as an inspiration to the World Health Organization in the 1970s and 80s with its barefoot doctors and the idea of um, primary health care. Um, so I feel that there are reasons to be optimistic, but um, all of these things depend on social forces, really, which is why I come back to the issues around civil society and labor movements and so on, because all these changes around equality and um, reducing the gap in rural, education, uh, rural educational opportunities and opportunities for education for the middle classes and urban areas will only come about through social pressure. The government, of course, can do some things, but it's up to Chinese people to keep pressure on government and to press for um, the kind of society that they would like to live in, which, and for some people, that will be a society that is fairer and more equal. For others, it won't be, and that's the issue, and it is the issue in any society. So... Um, I guess that takes me to the labor questions. And I think there are many challenges for labor in China. I mean, if you look at the strikes and protests in China, and or, 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 or not just labor, but any, any kind of strikes, any kind of social 
protests in China. The one thing the government doesn't want, and this is reflected in the regulations for uh, managing social organizations, is for people to organize on a nationwide basis, on a horizontal basis. Um, the experiences of the Falun Gong sur surrounding Chung uh, Nanhai in, um, in the 90s was um, very indicative um, of, of that. Uh, because any organization that can extend its power across several, many provinces is perceived as, I'm not saying it is a threat, but is perceived as a threat. Uh, so for um, labor in China to organize beyond the immediate factory, beyond uh, to organize sectorally in industries is very challenging. And I take everything you say about uh, Guangdong provinces and the really more enlightened uh, trade union leadership that has been in recent years in, uh, in, uh, in Guangdong province as being a factor there. Um, but it's, it's, what, there are lots of difficulties in organizing labor. One is that the backbone of the labor force in China now is not the state enterprise workers who've had an iron rice bowl, but it's migrant workers. And there are many, many, many of them. They change jobs quite often, so the turnover rate is high. In any context where you have surplus labor, India is the same. The bargaining position of labor is, is very weak. Um, and there are issues also around the perhaps it's not so much there being, well, one trade union is only having one trade union is problematic, but more problematic is that the trade union is so ineffective. Um, there, are, there are in the trade union, uh, in the All China Federation of Trade Union, there are uh, trade union cadres who, um, who are very uh, sympathetic to the conditions of workers, but um, that's not enough. And um, essentially, the ACFTU is a bureaucratic appendage of the state. And that's not the kind of organization that's really going to push uh, for the kind of improvements that are needed um, for uh, migrant workers. Yeah. Thanks. Um, to uh, address your issue of sustainability and what challenge China uh, faces, I think at the moment there's a degree of uh, GDP fetish in China. And uh, I think the challenge is how to slow down China's growth gracefully and give something back to the gen you know, general public. Instead of you know, just, uh, the Chinese will say, meaning if you manipulate the figures, you get promotion, right? And the officials tend to manipulate a lot of figures. Yeah. So that kind of a circle should be broken. Secondly, we should send Tony Blair from this country to China, and Tony Blair will say, education, education, education. That will actually support domestic consumption. Plus, another arm of the domestic consumption will be uh, health services. So at the moment, China is having a really a third world health service. Um, every 10, uh, 10,000 people will have less than 10 doctors uh, or 10 uh, hospital beds. So this is really not acceptable for a country claiming to be a shining star of development. So you have a lot of growth, but not always development. We're talking about social development, right? 
Okay, more questions, please. Yeah. Hello. Thank you for all the speakers of the panel. I just uh, uh, have a question about, uh, you know, our government posts uh, the Harmony Society, and they said it's uh, good for uh, it's the state the establishment is good for our economic growth. So I just want to know how do you think about this? Do you think uh, the political uh, is uh, the p the political stablement is good for our growth, or we should, you know? Uh, to just uh, get more uh, political issue about more democracy or more social movements is better. Yeah, thank you. And I am looking forward to China Model 3. Thank you. Okay. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, Professor Hussein, you mentioned about uh, transport and housing um, as key urbanization challenges. Where would you put water? That's a very simple question. Okay, um, move on. Uh, Martin, yes. Thank you. Uh, Martin Albro, LSE. Uh, question to all the panel. Uh, China does pose a huge challenge to the West. There are not just challenges to China. And the major one, I think, is that China is a one-party state. And it has been enormously successful, unbelievably successful. What is going to happen to the party in future? How will it evolve? Right, one more. Yes, please. Uh, Tim Owens, I'm a banker. Um, I have a question directed to uh, Dr. Kent. Um, you painted a wonderful picture of counter-cyclical performance in China versus the rest of the world. Given all the comments about the export-led nature of the recent growth spurt, do you really expect China will remain a counter-cyclical uh, influence in the global economy? And if so, which direction does it go relative to the rest of the world? Okay, well, um, Jude, would you like to... Um, start? No, do you want to start? Okay. You have a go because you're. I have a go. Okay. Yes. So yeah. I shouldn't really always shift my shift my responsibility to somebody else. Okay. <laughs> well, um, China's stability uh, does stability rest on one-party rule or democracy? Um, well, both systems produce peace. Yeah, no doubt. You know, one-party dictatorship can produce peace, and democracy can pr produce peace and chaos as well. Well, dictatorship can produce chaos as well. So, uh, it seems to me um, it it is a you know perfect choice. You, you know, sort of a dilemma any civilization will have to face in the next century or two. Um, Democracy will slow China down because different interest groups will have different claims and they don't want you know, China produce GDP only. They want to produce services. So in that regard, in the long run, to safeguard China's future, democracy is the way to go, I think. Uh, this is particularly valid considering the, for example, the collapse of Soviet Union, 
and the Eastern Bloc, and also the Arab Spring. And this is, seems to me is a mainstream now. So the old good, good old days of the dictators are basically are over. So China should think carefully about how and when to enter a better world of democracy. Water. Um, well, I know China, part, parts of China uh, really uh, are facing you know, severe shortage of water. That's one issue. Where in parts of China where, where, where you do have water, the chances are the water has been polluted. So I don't think it is a you know, pretty picture. Um, this, is, or this is basically the disease or side effect of overdevelopment. I think China should consider to slow down. It's a good time to slow down then uh, you know, basically to count, uh, you know, basically to tr re rebalance um, resource base and then your output and, you know, and also uh, uh, how and why and when and, or if all you have done benefit the general public, the majority Chinese. So uh, it seems to me at the moment uh, China hasn't been thinking uh, straight. You know, they simply believe we have to be uh, industrialized, we have to be modern, regardless. That regardless is certainly going to cost China very, very dearly. We know in the past 20 years, the amount of uh, pollution, environmental damages caused by Chinese fast growth equals the amount of foreign direct investment. So in the end, actually, China hasn't gained much, really, because on the, on the one hand, you, get, you, you gain a lot of foreign support. On the other hand, you damage your own um, economic base. So it is killing the goose who can lay golden eggs. Yeah, this is really something quite puzzling. Um, challenge, Martin. Uh, do you think a party state can win this long struggle? Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think party state is, is a attractive option anymore. I think in the next generation we will see they will basically they will fall down one by one. And the China model may actually support the very last party state. But mind you, even inside the party state, a lot of party members, this is you between our uh, private conversation, a lot of the party members are not really communists. So they are there for their own personal gains. So you can't trust them. So that party state is actually a eventually will become an empty shell. And you know, people will find a way to, to bypass it. And also, uh, Arthur have, have a sound bite saying, if a party is so good, why not to have two of them <laughs> instead of one? Yeah. So this is brilliant. Yeah. 
Um, okay, well, that, that's basically what I want to say. Uh, Adam. Right. Okay, let me just briefly say about the water problem. China actually on per head basis has fewer liters of water per head of population than most countries in the world. So it's naturally short of water. The northern half of the country is very short of water and confronts China with some very, very difficult issues, especially in North China Plain. Agriculture in long run is not viable as it is practiced. But it supports still about over 200 million people who are dependent on agriculture. So there are difficult issues. Let me turn to question of politics and make a paradoxical statement that there has been quite a lot of political change in China since the beginning of reform. But obviously China still remains a one-party state. It's not a democratic state, but it'd be wrong to say that one-party state in China is actually exactly the same as it existed in 1980. In fact, it doesn't. The sphere of personal freedom is much bigger in China now than it existed in 1980. Second, democracy is not something you choose like you choose a toothpaste. I mean, the very fact of economic development actually brings about change in political structure. And it may be, I, I may not say that it will necessarily lead to democracy by itself, but it would give rise to more forms of pluralistic government. And that may be provide a good precondition for the development of people. Well, finally, one about political development and economic development. In general, both you can find good examples of economic development both in democracies and dictatorships. I mean, you, can, you don't have to look at China, you can look at Korean Peninsula. But what is generally true that actually the divergences are extreme in democracies are less than you find in democratic dictatorial states. If you think dictatorial states are good for economic development, you don't have to go further than North Korea to see what's happening there. So, so I, I think that uh, you know, in general, there's nobody who says that by democracy you actually necessarily grow faster. But in some sense, democracies do have, on average, better distribution of income and fewer extremes. I think that would be. So I think that finally let me end with comments is that China's political system will change. China is not different from the rest of the world. And so as uh, one thing which is at issue in China is legitimacy. That is, the old basis of legitimacy in China have traditionally been based on May the Fourth Movement that is threat to China by foreigners to its territory and its people. That probably became the main sort of support of the Chinese nationalism for a long period of time. But China is perceivably, or cannot be perceived, is under threat by foreigners, uh, either its territory or its people. So it has to find other bases of legitimacy which are not simply based on sort of siege mentality. So the comment which Dan Ken just mentioned about, as somebody said in China, if the Communist Party of China is such a good thing, why can't we have two of them? Right, also... So two is better than one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we have one surplus. Now, 
I believe deeply that the seed of a democracy has been sown in China's soil simply because across the Taiwan Strait you have a full-grown democracy and there's no reason for the mainlanders to give a try. I mean, if the Taiwanese can do it, why not the Chinese on the mainland? Lu Hong, how much time do we have? Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, I think you have to. It is. Yeah, certainly. Thank you very much indeed for your uh, uh, brilliant audience. And also, uh, let's wish uh, uh, Jude have a safe journey to, <laughs> to, uh, to Guangzhou. Thank you so much.